Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello, hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And we are at an interesting time. And some big news. In the news, because Pope Benedict has resigned, and he's Benedict XVI. And this has made a lot of people have that magical question of, can popes do that? Has this happened before? Yeah. The answers are yes and yes. Well, and it's made people look back at the past, yeah. too, in a way that uh, I'd say your average newspapers don't usually do. Right. There have been a lot of interesting, you know, kind of quickly put together news stories on, um, no, there have been other popes that have resigned. Here they are. Uh and they're usually very quick, sort of uh, glossy versions, because they're trying to pack a quick sort of soundbite into each one. Uh, but one of them, in particular, was also a Benedict. And he is quite an interesting story. <laughs> uh, you know, the Real Housewives have nothing on him. <laughs> I mean, there's some serious depravity and drama at play uh, to wade through. And he was pope during what's considered a really dark time of the papacy. Um, I think many uh, theologians and historians would be just as happy if they didn't have to acknowledge that period. Right off this period. It really is not. It has nothing really to do with religion at that point. It's all about politics and power. There's really not much piety to be found. And and we've covered a few periods like that on the podcast. And, um, oh, you know, the Borgia Pope. Right. <laughs> also not a super great chapter. Or the Synod of Corpses. That was a really bad yeah. time in the 800s. And they seem to produce some of the most interesting characters and the most fascinating stories. Yeah. But, yes, clearly very dark periods from time to time in papal history. Yeah, which is, I mean, natural with any seat of power that eventually people with less than ideal goals and interests are going to want those seats of power. And so at this time, uh, you know, simony was really rampant and most wealthy families, like their whole goal was just to secure a seat for one of their family members in the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. Because it wasn't just a powerful religious position. It's a powerful ruling position. Yeah. Uh, and Benedict the Ninth is the pope we're going to talk about today. And his resignation is sometimes cited as the first, although in a fuzzy way. They're like, this is the first we really have records of in terms of what happened. There were some that are thought to have resigned prior to that, but the records just aren't there. There's not enough a little fuzzy. Enough evidence and not enough uh writing has survived that they can really pinpoint hard evidence on any of those. So he kinda he sometimes you'll see him referenced in particularly like these new news articles that have popped up because of the current Pope's resignation They'll say he was the first to resign, but there's probably not the case. This is a good good guy to start the list with. <laughs> <laughs> you got to really get in there with a bang. Uh, but fortunately, there is a lot of information, although information that's sometimes kind of controversial about yeah. dates and what exactly went down. But there is a lot on Benedict the Ninth. Yeah, partially because he is so fascinating and revolting at the same time. Yeah, he's one of those. And there's a strong modern text on him, Reginald L. Poole's text on Benedict the Ninth, and also Gregory the Sixth for the British Academy in 1921 is considered basically the 
definitive source on his life, right? Yeah, and it's um, uh, available online. You could even just uh, Google Reginald Poole and Benedict Nine, and it'll probably come up. There are PDFs available at a few different places. And it's not long. It's about 58 pages. It's kind of a two-parter because he ends up, after he published his first big part of it or he completed it, there was another scholar working on similar things and that caused him to kind of revise some of his information based on new data. But really, Poole is what every newspaper writer that's trying to dig <laughs> up information goes to. And he was really exhaustive in comparing different contemporary accounts that were going on because different, you know, monks in different places were writing this as an effort to keep the history. Well, and writing it with different motives, too. Different motives, different information. I mean, information had traveled to them often by word of mouth, and that was colored by some of the people carrying that information, whether the person that recounted it in writing knew that or not or was taking that into account. We can't always know. So they're not all consistent. Uh, But Poole, as I said, really went through all of them and he would even compare them to existing scientific logs of the days. Like in some, they will um, cite there was an earthquake that happened in the midst of all of this. And if they get that date right, he'll kind of give them a little more credence. (laughs) But if there are a couple that kind of use different events, I think there was an eclipse at one point. And there's one writer in particular that's a little sloppy with the dates and kind of uses them to dramatic effect. And so he has a rating scale. Pool is very quick to say, like, this is not a credible source. This guy can't be trusted. If you get the eclipse wrong, (laughs) who can trust you on the crazy events? Yeah, almost exactly how he words it, just (laughs) in slightly more stilted language. Uh, So he really did kind of break it all down and analyze it. And according to Poole, the Liber Pontificus, which may almost be called the Lives of the Popes, is not at our disposal. It ends abruptly in the last decade of the ninth century and is not resumed in a form deserving the name of an historical narrative until 1073. So, unfortunately, that's... Right where Benedict was. He's right, right in, smack that, in the middle that dead there. zone where there, the information was really not being recorded. And there have been some theories that um, some of that was expunged on purpose. Some of that has been destroyed purposely because it was such a dark time. This is what exactly the kind of stuff you would want to get rid of if you did have the power to go back through that archive. Yes. And as a consequence, too, even uh, some of the there's not all that much information on some of the things Benedict did while he held the position of Pope. Now, part of that is just like the power play of, you know, the next guys in line kind of want to erase the work of a previous one. But most of it really is kind of an embarrassment issue. They want to let's forget some of those things that happened because they're really not in the best interest of the church. Well, part of the problem <laughs> is that uh, Benedict the Ninth comes to the papal throne at a remarkably young age. Yes. That's probably the, the first shocking point in yes. this story. He was born Theophylactus Tusculum, uh, and he was one of the youngest popes. You'll see records saying that he was only about 11 or 12. That's a, according to a Benedictine chronicler uh, when his father secured this post for him through bribery. But that's fallen out of favor. And now historians generally agree that he was between 18 and 20 years old when he became pope for the very first time yeah. in 1032. Still remarkably young. <laughs> yeah, that's an incredibly young age. I mean, we hear about kings and uh, other monarchs that are given 
Of course. They're, they inherit they a inherit throne a when they're very tiny, but usually they have someone to sort of stand in for them. Whereas this is definitely a case where they were like, nope, this is your son. I Look how I arranged this for you. I got you elected. I talked to the right people and did some favors. For for a position normally, uh, normally won through a lifetime of work and making connections and uh, – a certain seriousness that you would project that yes. you're not going to have at 18. Yes. But as we established, not really in this period no. of the papacy, unfortunately. So he also had some family connections. This was not yeah. an out of the blue. His father managed to to bribe his son into right. the, the papal throne because the preceding two popes were his uncles. That yeah. was Benedict VIII and Pope John the 19th. Yeah, so, so they were keeping it in the family. They were. It, and, and like you were just saying, too, with um, kings or, or emperors or whatnot inheriting a position, it was very much being treated as though being pope were a position similar to, to being king that could be passed on through the family. Yeah. Um, and so Benedict first takes what's called the, the See of Peter by some. You'll hear the papacy referred to, I'm sure most of our listeners know, is as with various names, the chair of Peter, the throne of Peter, uh, the see sometimes, sometimes just the papacy, sometimes just the chair. There are a lot of different names for it that come up in different texts. Um, but this first run at the papacy, <laughs> and we'll get back to why this is only the first one uh, for Benedict, was really debaucherous. I mean, there are some that say that he really kind of went out of his way to hit all of the seven deadly sins he, uh, there are various accounts, not so much like direct chronicling of things he did, but accusations and kind of derogatory remarks. And um, these quotes really speak for themselves. <laughs> uh, yeah, Ferdinand Gregor, Gregor, Gregorovius, I'm so sorry, uh, who was a later scholar. He was in the 1800s when he was writing this, but based on his studies, he chose to describe Benedict as a demon from hell in the disguise of a priest. It's pretty bad. The Catholic Encyclopedia calls him, quote, a disgrace to the chair of Peter. Uh, and Bishop Benno of Piacenza accused him of many vile adulteries and murders. And then in uh, Pope Victor III's uh, book on of dialogues. He was pope shortly after this period, 1086 to 1087. Yeah, um, he referred to, quote, his rapes, murders, and other unspeakable acts. His life as a pope was so vile, so foul, so execrable that I shudder to think of it. <laughs> that's serious juju. <laughs> that's, that's, that's strong um... words all around. And there are a lot of rumors about... <laughs> What kind of activities were going on to uh, produce quotes like this, to produce judgments like this? Yeah, the gentlest yeah. <laughs> at the top of the list is that he actively participated in simony. Except, which... except not too. I mean, we should we should make it clear too. That's a, <laughs> about as bad as it can get for a, for a pope, right? To be selling off clerical positions, which is how he got the position in the first place. In some ways, you know, through bribery, it wasn't direct. But yeah. oh, we'll get to the. The bigger chunk of simony later. If you've listened to the uh, Dante's Circle of Hell episode, Dante Inferno, Dante's Inferno, there are quite a few folks in there um, <laughs> because of simony. So that's pretty serious. Yeah. Um, others are just <laughs> more shocking. Yeah. Um, mainly that he was familiar with many prostitutes across Italy. Yeah. 
Uh, he is also rumored to have hosted frequent orgies. And to have participated in bestiality. And I, I, this one almost seems so extreme that you think it, it has to be like the gossip columns of the day. But he allegedly would curse God and toast the devil at his meals. It does seem like that would be pushing it, even for uh, the the run up of the other the other things he's rumored. I mean, it makes him such a sort of mustache twirling villain at that point. But we don't know because he clearly didn't seem terribly interested in the religious role that he was supposed to take as pope. That really wasn't his thing to be a religious leader. He just wanted the power. Yeah. And ultimately, that offended people too much. It yeah. was it was too wrong <laughs> what he was doing. Was one orgy too many. <laughs> Pushed it over the edge. And um, toward the end of 1044, Roman townsmen rose up against him and drove him out of town. Uh, this wasn't the first time this had happened. No, there was a very brief uprising in 1036, but it really didn't have much groundswell. And it was beaten down almost immediately. I mean, they don't even, most records don't even cite that as as him leaving the papacy. He he did leave Rome. There's, theoretically, it was just too, you know, for safety, but he wasn't really removed from his seat at any point. So the 1044 rebellion was the real deal, though. For sure. He was driven out of town, and a new pope was actually elected, John, the Bishop of Sabina, who became Sylvester III, uh, was the new pope in his place, although Sylvester is often referred to as an anti-pope. Yes. Um, because, of course, Benedict is still out there. <laughs> um <laughs> doing who knows what. Uh, but Sylvester only held the title of Pope for 49 days and then was deposed. Again, Benedict was restored. It's a lot of back and forth here and certain to to shake up the confidence that yeah. people had in this most holy, uh, very powerful office. Yeah. And to further shake the ground, if anyone had any faith in Benedict as a Pope, uh, he didn't stick around that second time very off, very long. No. He, uh, and there is some debate. A lot of times it's cited as a three week reign. Um, in Poole's analysis, he ends up calling it one month and 21 days, and he bases that on some of the, the rules that happened at the time about when a pope could actually be, um, you know, through official ceremony seated. Uh, so I think he calculates it at one month and 21 days, but, it's entirely possible that it was three weeks in when he made the proclamation that he was out of there again. Um, because the, the second time around is even more extraordinary than just being deposed. Yeah. So remember that Simony we talked about a little <laughs> while ago? Uh, he sold the seat of Pope. You can't get more uh, brazen than that. It is very brazen. I mean, it's... Not to say it's right, but it's one thing to, like, take a bribe under the table for another seat, but to just say, I would like a large sum of money so you can be Pope, please. (laughs) However, there is uh, maybe not such a level of yuckiness about this one. Well, it, it depends on how you look at it. So he was exactly he was selling it to his godfather. Yeah. Again, keeping things sort of close. (laughs) Um, Yes. It, his his godfather, who ultimately became Gregory the Sixth, but Gregory the Sixth is looked at from a few different perspectives, and some suggest that he wasn't doing this just because he wanted 
the power. Right. He wanted to be pope, and wow, conveniently, my godson is is going to be willing to sell it to me. Um, some suggest that he was doing this in as a noble attempt that he saw a chance. Oh, phew! You know, we can get this important holy position out of this completely unsuitable guy's hands. Right. And this is not a great way to go about it, but it works. And there's actually one uh, account that I read that suggested that Benedict actually went to uh, his godfather for advice because he was tired of the papacy. He didn't want to rule anymore. And he wasn't sure if he was allowed to just step down. And that uh, his godfather suggested, no, no, that's totally fine. But then ben- when Benedict was like, well, what am I going to do? I don't – I have to continue living. I need an income. Hint, hint. Right. And that that kind of was the genesis of this deal. Uh, but, yeah, there have – there are some texts that suggest that uh, Gregory VI was, in fact, not so great. That he – you know, he was accused of a lot of crimes. But most of those have kind of been discredited as gossip and jealousy rumors. Um it's definitely as the years have gone on and as it unfolds uh in just a few moments you'll hear how his his papacy unfolds it does kind of seem like he maybe was not the terror mm-hmm. you know he was not continuing the reign of terror that his godson had begun by any means Benedict's reason to leave, though, again, falls into his <laughs> shocking life story. But it also seems so much tamer, too, than, yeah. than a lot of uh, the earlier stuff. It's because he wanted to get married, um, although it doesn't seem as though it was some uh, star-crossed lovers story. No, he wanted to marry one of his cousins, which sounds <laughs> seedy to us today, but it was much more common then. Very and keep common. in mind, the families were huge, and sometimes cousins weren't always... Like, it wasn't as closely related as we think of cousins now. Yeah. They would call people that were, like, third and fourth cousins removed. Yeah, this was actually cousins. A, a cousin's uh, father had promised the daughter. So, you know, some sort of cousin relationship there. Um, he'd promised his daughter's hand to mm. Benedict on the condition that he resigned. <laughs> Seems obvious, right? Um, but retracted that promise after Benedict really did step down. Because, of course, Benedict, who's not Pope, is kind of just a guy with the bribe now. Well, and I i mean, this is strictly conjecture on my part, but I have to wonder if that wasn't, you know, possibly some other person that was trying to use any leverage they had to get this horrible person out of a seat of power. Yeah. No, I will give you my daughter if you step down and then to the daughter he's probably like I'm totally not doing that <laughs> we just just play along for the next couple of months and we'll see how this works out like it'll be fine this is our our historical conjecture yeah that's completely Fun. conjecture on my part but I also Seems have like to it'd wonder be a good part of the story. as you said it's so tame why would this man who apparently you know could conduct these huge or theaters of sexual exploit suddenly be interested in basically like a country maid it doesn't really make a lot of sense. We don't know her, I guess. <laughs> um, but the end of Gregory's time on the chair of Peter is pretty fuzzy, too. And um, there's <laughs> there's kind of a take back, possibly. Yeah. Um, the marriage, for whatever reason, didn't really work out. The marriage plan fell through right. because the father is rescinding the offer. Right. And uh, so according to some accounts, Benedict, after that, decided, well, uh, I want to be Pope again. Take that back. 
Um, some accounts also suggest that Sylvester III still was laying claim to the Pope's chair. Yes. So he was still in the picture. There was still a faction supporting him. And An he anti-Pope. Was, was still completely ready to take the reins if opportunity presented itself. Yeah. Uh, and in the midst of this, Gregory went and met with King Henry. Um, and King Henry had not yet been crowned the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. He was Henry still... Henry III. Right. He's... Uh, king of Germany and was going to be crowned, but it had not happened yet. Uh, and he, Henry crossed the Alps so that he could come and have a powwow and try to restore some order in Italy because news was reaching him all the time of how corrupt things had become and how big of a mess had happened and this whole crazy Benedict situation had been mm-hmm. playing out. Uh, so he crossed the Alps and went down into Italy to meet with Gregory and uh, in Poole's research, reliable accounts relay that Gregory was received as a pope honorably. You know, it was a very magnanimous meeting of the minds uh, because there has been some speculation that King Henry III just came in and was like, wait a minute, you totally can't sell this office. Like, you're out of here. Yeah. But it wasn't quite as... He was treating Gregory It wasn't a smackdown on Gregory. Mm-hmm. It was definitely much more of like, a, we have to figure this situation out because it's not okay but I'm willing to meet you and discuss this. It's not okay to have Benedict floating around Sylvester the <laughs> Third. Yeah. And so now Gregory. there are three people laying claim to the papacy. That's not although some a records in the timeline don't include um Sylvester so much in this. Some it's like he just floated off into the ether and was never heard from again. <laughs> but others say that he was indeed waiting in the wings and still, you know, making noise that he would happily take the Sheriff Peter uh, if his faction were to come into power. So a synod was summoned, which is a a meeting of a council of high-ranking church officials um, near Rome, and they were just going to figure the situation out, discuss the matter at hand, and talk to all of the, the men who were laying claim to the seat and figure out what was best for the church. Benedict decided <laughs> he wasn't going to show. He didn't want any part of that noise. <laughs> uh, because there was, uh, you know, the very high likelihood that he would be found guilty of simony. Clearly it was about his problems. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so he decided not to appear right. at that. Uh, the result, though, was that Sylvester was stripped of his rank, um, sent into to exile, is sent to a monastery, yeah. um, taken taken out of the power right. <laughs> um, map there. And then Gregory did confess, too, to the purchase of his place as the head of the church. Right. Um, and some records say that at that point he resigned, he deposed himself. Yeah, like he acknowledged that it was... What he did was wrong. Not right and sinful, but that he was trying to create positive change. Yeah, but that he couldn't legitimately be Pope going forward. Right. Um, others, though, say that that was not his idea at all. He was deposed by the council. Right. And there is um, some historians debate that that's just a matter of kind of semantics. It's just the wording of the documents yeah. because they have to rank it as a as a the Pope being d- deposed. Mm-hmm. And so whether he did it or not was kind of neither here nor there in terms of the legalese of the documents. But that it there are several accounts that suggest that he was, he almost behaved stupidly by going, I totally bribed my way into the seat. Like, it, I did that. And they're like, why would you say, well, I, I'm not really intending to do this. This yeah. is, I'm just trying to fix things. And that was the only tool I had at hand. 
So those three guys. So all three of them are out. They're all out. And a new guy is in, a German bishop this time. Yeah. Uh, and King Henry III, he was not King Henry III's first choice. And King Henry III could not really uh, participate in the election of the next pope because he was not the emperor yet. He had a strong interest in it, though. He did. And allegedly, the um, council members... And even some reports suggest the people of Rome kind of begged him, will you please, you know, help us find the right person for this job? This has been a mess. And, you know, as part of our efforts to clean things up, we would like you to suggest somebody. His first choice was like, I don't want to do this job. (laughs) That sounds a little too intense for me. Um, Yeah, his first choice was uh, Aladbert who was Archbishop of Bremen, uh, but he refused. And in turn, he suggested um, Swidger, who was a German bishop, and he became the new pope. It, it does seem, I mean, you you can't question somebody somebody's concern over taking a position <laughs> at this point, um, despite the power that you might be able to wield. Um, just a side note, though, the involvement of Henry, this German interest, yeah. um, did give birth to this whole series of other dramas, problems, infighting, lots of topics for you and Tracy to handle someday. <laughs> if you want yeah, to, down the road. Real popes of uh, the, <laughs> the next ten hundred. The next phase of people who wanted to reform how things were done were like, wait, 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 you can't get government officials involved in how the church is run. The papacy runs on its own. It's its own, you know, it's kind of siloed um, power seat. And it, you should not have kings telling you who becomes pope. Yeah. So some people questioned. Um, at the time, I think it was a little bit more accepted just because they were, they were breathing a sigh of relief. Like, oh, OK, we have this Benedict mess straightened out. Um, Clement II is in and we're just going to move forward from here. But it did. That sowed the seeds, though, of some later problems. So, However, <laughs> yeah, things aren't over yet. So this synod was taking place December 20th, 1046. Right. By 1047, Clement II is dead. Yeah. Uh, possibly poisoned. Possibly. Uh, it, there's no definitive proof. There has been some uh, postulation and rumor that Benedict IX may have poisoned Clement. Uh and in 1959, bone samples of Clement II were tested, and there were really high levels of lead found, which could be from poisoning, or it could have been inadvertent, because at the time, um, winemaking involved the use of something called litharge, which is a sweetener that's a form of lead. Uh, and you could cumulatively have been drinking wine and building up lead poisoning over the course of years. Well, especially after a life in religious orders, yes. <laughs> dealing with Whereas wine. part regularly. of the sacraments, you're always having yeah. to drink wine. Um, so Clement died, whether from poison or other reasons. Um, Benedict the Ninth may have been involved. May we don't know not. for sure. We don't know. What we do know is that he seized Rome and the title of Pope for himself yet again. This is time number three. 
um, after Clement. <laughs> I mean, I, maybe that's what he was hoping at this point. Yeah. Grown up a little bit. Um, but he, he did that November of 1047, shortly after Clement died. Within a year, though, driven out of town yet again. And finally, a second German pope, this time, uh, Damasus II was installed into the papal position, November 1048. Yeah. So pretty high turnover rate in these immediate years with Benedict popping up three separate times. <laughs> yeah, his second two seats were very short. But even so, man, that's some tenacity. Yeah. So I keep going after that thing. It's mine. It's mine. My dad got it for me. <laughs> I guess there's only one resignation in there, and that's the middle one. Yeah. But it's these final years that I've been seeing some accounts of in the in the newspaper paper articles you're talking about, yeah. um, detailing all the resigned popes. What did he do in these final years? Because that's what people are clearly interested in in the current situation too. Uh, what is the current Pope Benedict? Um, doing, I, I think he's announced he'll lead a life of seclusion, retirement. Yeah. Um, and Benedict the Nine. It depends again on on different accounts. Some accounts say he never lost the desire. You know, he was always hoping was to scheming. get back in there. But others say that he did turn to a to a life of of quiet reflection. Eventually, yes. Uh, Abbot Luke, who was an abbot at the Abbey of Grata Ferrata, um, wrote an account that suggested that the pontiff turned from his sin and he turned to uh, Bartholomew, who was the abbey's fourth abbot, for a remedy for what he perceived to be his disorders that were driving him to, you know, all of this sort of really extreme living. And Bartholomew's advice led Benedict to finally resign the pontificate and say, I, I acknowledge, I acknowledge I'm not pope anymore. I'm not going to be pope again. Um, and that the, uh, you know, the former Pope then allegedly died penitent and that he had spent the rest of his life kind of reflecting and meditating and praying on everything that had gone wrong. Yeah. And he died, he didn't die until 1065. So that puts him, um, right around 50 ish. Since we don't have a hard number on how old he was when he took the throne in, um, the early 1030s, but you know, 50 to 55 probably. Longer than you're expecting after, if, you, yeah. if you're to believe. I mean, that's almost half the rumor. That's almost 20 years after the final ousting, uh, which is a long time to think about what he'd done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, um, uh, you know, we always hope. But whether he reformed at the end or not didn't really matter. Historically, his papacy is regarded as like the most shameful in or one of the most shameful in the history of the the chair of peter uh for all the obvious reasons we've discussed now yeah it's uh quite clear why it's it would such make a that list drama i'm surprised there haven't been more um you know film adaptations and more discussions well, I, of it i wonder now with the with the borgias and the interest in that family yeah. There will be renewed interest in yeah. mining the papal history. People will start taking a look at some of these older popes uh, with truly wild stories. Yeah. Um, because it is fascinating. And I always think that a position like this, um, that the importance it has for so many people, um, the... the um, 
people of Rome rising up to yeah. <laughs> drive this guy out of town because it is so shameful and so upsetting. Um, it, it's a pretty fascinating position to, to look at and to look at some of the people who didn't live up to expectation. Yeah. Well, and I, I mean, you know, we see it through the lens of modernity, but <laughs> there are more than a billion Catholics now. And I think if a current pope suddenly like these sorts of stories were circulating about really any significantly established religion and their leader, there would be some crazy news coverage. Like, oh, it would yeah. be insane. I mean, there are always instances where you hear of, like, tiny little kind of cult-like groups that have bizarre things that going on, that are going on, but someone with that much power Major and that many followers religion. and a, exactly, a global influence, that's, it's a lot to think about someone that corrupt having that much influence over so many people. And it wasn't a billion then, but still, the numbers of the world, it was a, a seat of significant influence. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it's a, it's an interesting story oh, and something, <laughs> something, uh, to think about too, when following the, the current resignation, uh, and, and just the history behind that. I always find that really fascinating too, when, um, when a modern news story makes everybody turn back and reflect a yeah. little bit on, on what's come before. And I think probably most people could ag- agree that, uh, resigning due to to age and an understanding of of um, mental and physical decline <laughs> is it, it seems so tame and it completely does. reasonable it when you see it against this backdrop of I want to go marry my cousin yes and also maybe take some money from some people I don't think life. that would fly these days it really would not so Benedict fascinating. Uh, Thanks for the entertainment, Benedict. I'm glad I did not live at a time when you were influencing my world. (laughs) So I also have a bit of listener mail for us. And this comes from listener Helena or Helena. I don't know which one, but I hope one of those is right. And it says, Dear Missed in History, The whole time I was listening to your podcast on Walter Potter and Taxidermy, I couldn't stop thinking about Dutch artist Bart Jensen's recent work, in which he took his beloved and recently deceased cat Orville and gave him a new life as a helicopter. Mm. I know this work. (laughs) Uh, As the article in Forbes points out, yes, there is a connection between the name Orville and the Wright brothers. This article also names drop, name drops Damien Hurst with his use of dead animals in art and does a nice quick job of pointing out our own human discrepancies in how we decide what is appropriate use of animals in their afterlives. I wonder what the Victorians would have thought if Walter Potter made a flying cat. I'm actually from North Carolina, home of the rights, but have been living in Amsterdam for the past three years. When Orville had his first flight in the gallery here, the video went viral and there was a lot of public opinion against it, which boiled down to, poor kitty. While I could agree, I think it's interesting how most people don't blink an eye walking through the meat aisle of the grocery store or think of wearing a leather jacket as equal to parading around in the flesh of a dead animal sewn together. Bit of a gruesome description, sorry. I really think that part of what makes old Orville so threatening and offensive to people is this idea of automating the dead. Which is fascinating. I mean, we have... Everybody sort of has their own relationship with the afterlife and their own sort of ways of dealing with the passing of things. Uh, you know, I couldn't do that to one of my pets, but I... Tell us more. (laughs) Tell us more about the helicopter, because... Oh, so if you haven't seen this... um, I know all the listeners right now are saying, now wait, I bet a lot of them have seen it, because it really did go everywhere. If you haven't seen this, basically he 
the cat was sort of flat-ish, and he had his legs splayed out, and Jansen kind of hooked him up. I think it was radio-controlled, so he had an RC unit that he could fly it on, and he basically could fly the cat around like a remote-controlled plane. And it's a little bit startling. I mean, it's... Yeah. One, he's not in, like, a normal cat position, and two, I mean, I think people kind of had that reaction of, that's profane, because... Yeah. It's your deceased pet. It's a pet. And, you know, for some people, pets are like family, and you wouldn't do that to a family member. I saw lots of that argument going on online. Mm-hmm. Um, others were like, no, this is his way of honoring his pet, and to him this makes sense. And, I mean, you can't dictate how someone grieves for the loss of anything, so... I know it's because we just talked about popes now, but I can't <laughs> stop thinking about the cadavers in it. <laughs> yeah. As a, as a universally considered bad idea of something to do with yeah. a, a I mean, deceased I, person. I think for a lot of a lot of people, it's just creepy to uh, retain the deceased in that manner. And we talked about that with Walter Potter in yeah. general, too, how there is a creepy factor and involved. I, I don't know, because I will say this. Like, when I was first introduced to Walter, Walter Potter, I remember my first reaction being more one of fascination and then I had that moment of ooh creepy but still really fascinating whereas it kind of went opposite with Jansen's work where I went ooh creepy wait I kind of am trying to see what he's doing oh no I still am having a hard time getting over the creepy so I don't know if it's just the use of small accessories and tableau (laughs) that makes Potter's work a little bit more palatable just like the clothes but there's a sweetness to it (laughs) whereas this is a little bit more kind of There's an in-your-face element to it yeah. that is a little bit harder, I think, for people to it, kind of cope with. It's neat, though, to be able to put this on a continuum, sort of, from Potter's work. And yeah. I think things that disturb but amaze people in this uh, space are still going on today. Oh, yeah. Taxidermy, I think, is going to continue to be controversial for a long time. Probably. I mean, it happens in resorts even now. Like, there are hunting lodges that have questioned some of their decor that is very natural to have in a hunting lodge, like when you have mounted heads, but there are guests that will complain and say that that's not what they're there for. They're there for, you know, cozy, Scenery. cozy cocoa and snow time, mm-hmm. and they don't want to look at dead things, and it kind of comes down to everybody has their own reaction, and you can't dictate how someone is going to feel about a thing like that. All you can do is make your best decisions on how you handle it and hope everybody else is okay or doesn't <laughs> mind just leaving you alone to do your thing. Well, thank you, <laughs> Helena, or Helena, yeah. for um, passing on that note. That's yeah. a really smart comparison. It's a, yeah, it's me. a really astute point to pull together. If you guys want to email anything similar or uh, your takes on the current papal resignation and how uh, you're connecting that to history, you can email us. At, we're at historypodcast at discovery.com. We're also in Twitter at Missed in History, and we are in Facebook. And if you want to learn a little bit more about popes in general, we do have an article called How the Papacy Works, and that'll give you a whole rundown. <laughs> so check that out on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.